This podcast is supported by the University of Tartu Astra Project Peraspera, financed by the European Regional Development Fund. Hey everyone, welcome to the Communicating Science Podcast, where we discuss the challenges and pitfalls of PhD research and hopefully give you some insight and advice. So today we're talking with uh, Rowena Murray. She's a professor of education, director of research in the School of Education at the University of West of Scotland and adjunct professor at Swinburne University, Melbourne. Her teaching and research focuses on academic writing. Uh, The subject of her journal articles and books include how to write a thesis, writing for academic journals, and the Handbook of Academic Writing, co-authored with Sarah Moore. Um, she organizes writing retreats for academic writing in England uh, and other countries. Um, so, Rowena, welcome. Um, so we've spent the last two days uh, at this you know, beautiful location uh, of Bowfield Hotel in Howwood, Scotland, uh, attending the Writing and Rhetoric Workshop. And first of all, it has been really, really wonderful and incredibly useful to have followed the workshop. Um, uh, and we're delighted that we have the opportunity to talk to you about uh, about writing. And so the first question that we actually have is very much related to the workshop itself. And um, we were wondering if maybe you could elaborate a little bit on the uh, workshop of writing and rhetoric and how this fits into uh, your concept of, of writing. Happy to, and thank you for asking me to do, to do this, to contribute. Um, I think... Uh, the narrative for this is that as a PhD student myself in uh, Pennsylvania in the United States, I uh, learned how to teach writing courses which all undergraduate students will be doing and you know there might be a hundred thousand of them. So as a graduate student in the English department doing your PhD, you get training in this, mentoring, people observe you, they have lots of course materials, you know, you get examined on it, you know, so it's a total uh, training for teaching in higher education, but specific to writing. And to be honest, if I hadn't done that course, I probably wouldn't, we wouldn't be having this conversation because I wouldn't have been, I wouldn't have written nearly as much myself and I wouldn't be helping so many other people with their writing in these ways. I've always been fascinated by writing, but this kind of introduced some new ways of solving the puzzle of writing. But having said that, well, that tradition is well established in the, U- in the US. It's not so well established in the UK and in lots of other countries, including Australia and so on. So my work is about building in writing development into uh, where it's needed, particularly for thesis writers. You know, when I first came back from the States, I thought, we need to do this here. We need to do some of this. I need to run a course right now. And so I developed a thesis writing course, and that was immediately very popular. You'd probably find the same thing. Um, Students know they can learn about writing, um, and it's writing at a different level, you know, and then academics would come along because writing is very competitive in the UK, writing for publication. Um, So they started coming along to workshops and wanting more support. And if you start calling it support, it sounds like there's a deficit model, there's a weakness. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that will bother some people. But if you start saying, no, this is a certain level, there are levels of writing development here. You know, what you learned in school about writing is great, but it's not going to equip you for... These are not the skills for the rest of the writing you need to do in, your, in the rest of your life, particularly now that ri- academic writing is so competitive. And our PhD students like yours have to, have to think about publishing uh, or work in publishing while they're doing the PhD, which I think is good for their careers, but it's a big ask mm-hmm. to say let's develop thesis writing skills and writing for publication skills in the absence of a course. How are they going to do that? Mm-hmm. You know, And so 
This course has been about developing the knowledge base that people have. Everybody in the room, everybody in this course knows lots about writing, particularly you two. Um, but that's not the issue. Um, the issue is there's a whole knowledge base here about how to construct an argument, and it's called rhetoric. And if you're going to have a course on rhetoric, how to structure arguments, then also you need to give people time to write, and that's why the course was called Rhetoric and Writing. Initially, I was just going to do a course that was all about rhetoric, and people said, no, 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 we need, we need to put that into practice. And to be honest, all my writing workshops would involve writing activities and time to talk about them as well. So that's why it's, it's rhetoric and writing courses, not just rhetoric and composition. Mm-hmm. So it's a little bit different from the American tradition that I was trained in, but it really strongly draws on that. Right. So in one of your latest publications, you make strong references to writing programs at universities to support writing for academics. So maybe for our listeners, could you please uh, maybe elaborate what you mean by writing programs? Um, I'm not really sure. I mean, out of context, writing programmes could mean, I suppose, a lot of different things because there is no one thing in the UK or in other countries as well. Yeah. And it's about the word programme says, look, get a curriculum here. What, what is their curriculum? It's not just a workshop. You know, what, what do people need to know? And there's a literature in this. There's a massive literature in academic writing in different countries uh, that I try and draw on, actually, not just the UK tradition. And not just the US tradition, there's a lot of people in Australia writing about this stuff as well. Um, and particularly the doctoral curriculum idea, there are quite a few people like Claire Richardson talking about that in Australia. So um, it's about saying, let's um, formalise it, let's make it a course, um, let's you know give people um, the specific training in writing that they need for the writing they have to do. Um, so I think in, in, in a way it's quite an open term, the word programme, but it's really trying to send a signal that, look, an hour and a half course is going to maybe raise awareness, I think, of maybe what they don't know sometimes. And for some people, I mean, these are all very bright people. You know, they're all super bright people, PhD students. That's not in question. But it's it's maybe about students and maybe some supervisors as well don't know what they don't know about writing. I mean, they know a lot, so that's where this kind of misconception comes from. So it's a valid perception, I guess. But the paper I wrote with Anne Lee is where we're saying, here is how some of that literature translates for supervisors. Here's what supervisors can do to develop PhD students' writing. I don't know if you know this paper. And she's worked quite a lot in, in the Nordic countries, and I've, done, I've started to do that a little bit as well. Uh, so there seems to be a kind of receptiveness in... Norway, Sweden, Finland and so on and to some of these approaches for whatever reason Denmark as well um, so it's about saying if there is no programme then as a supervisor I need to make sure there is a programme actually mm-hmm. as a supervisor myself and I have a lot of this knowledge already and to some extent that's individualised to my PhD students but to some extent we meet as a group and I'll go through like paragraph structure or the structures of arguments or what's a causal argument, some of the things we've covered in this course. Mm. So that's what I'm getting at with programme, is it's, it's not just a wee, a small, short workshop. It's, mm. uh, it's really saying we need to teach this, we need to learn this as we do other aspects of our discipline. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, I think that's, that's maybe... Um, you know, one of the, the the things that we are really having, um, mm. or that we struggle with, in terms of trying to 
promote writing at our universities. So how do we do this? So we, we have a writing center, for example, that we try to empower in order to promote writing as a discipline to say, okay, well, the, exactly as you mentioned, there is there's a lot of literature about it. Uh, and at the same time, also to promote that amongst uh, amongst the staff primarily. And I think that's maybe where where I might see that distinction between program and courses so that the program itself really caters to the university and to staff saying, OK, well, this is what we're doing in order to tackle some of the problems that some of the doctoral students are facing, but maybe even master students and bachelor students. Um, and, and, you know, these are the kind of solutions that we can provide. And those solutions might not only be, mm-hmm. for example, courses, but they might also be different types of writing interventions. Uh, and I think in, in a lot of your publications, you also mentioned the term writing interventions mm-hmm. as, as, a, uh, as something. Um, I think that's really clever. I think you need to connect with the universities. We would call them KPIs, Key Performance Indicators. Right. You know, and I know it's, we've talked about how hard it is to create a causal argument, but if you can mm-hmm. see people, there's more PhD completions, mm-hmm. and a KPI is all our staff will have PhDs, right. and they have to apply for their fellowships for the academy, mm-hmm. um, 90 or 95% of them, that's a writing exercise. So there's all these writing, all these KPIs, key okay. performance indicators for my university that involve writing, different right. kinds of writing, specialised writing. Right. And so, you know, we would link the out, the reports in each writing retreat mm-hmm. that I would send to the vice-chancellor okay. and other senior officers. And then we do an annual report that I would send to the vice-chancellor when I was running these retreats for my university. Right, yeah. Uh, I mean, for example, at the University of Tartu, we are currently going through a, uh, a reform of the PhD uh, programme. Um, and one of those aspects is, I think, on, for the whole of Estonia, they are changing the financial structure for PhD students. Um, so they are receiving uh, a higher stipendium, uh, hoping that they will be much more engaged uh, with the writing. In, in this case, actually more engaged with the thesis that they have to produce at the end of their uh, PhD. Mm-hmm. Um, because at the moment, there are a lot of PhD students who are actually working besides, uh, you know, besides their uh, studying. Um, Mm -hmm. but but of course if you consider that you know financial incentives might not be the only incentives you know so you know you might actually say okay well I'm going to give you more money so that you can spend more time writing but if writing itself is the struggle then of course you might also need to provide additional incentives in order to support that process I think that's absolutely I mean Robert Boyce in 1987 that 1987 paper which is quite a while ago and he Mm -hmm. said you know his paper is called is release time an effective component of faculty development or words very close to that and he's saying basically if you give people more time will they write more and it's like well not necessarily they'll use exactly say you get sabbatical for six months well you'll use exactly the strategies you're using now mm-hmm. and to take people to drop people into a retreat or say you're going to this workshop you're doing that writing retreat they'll go with their existing skills and, and attitudes and behaviors concepts um and how is that meant to how is more time um, meant to um, facilitate their, their writing having said that people talk about time all the time the problem is time and it's about then learning how to make time for writing and that sounds absurd to many super bright people which they all are I'm sure PhD students all are um, how is it that we can't make time for writing that's a quite a, it sounds like quite a simplistic problem mm-hmm. to solve and it's really not mm-hmm. it's about it's again what do we understand by the stages in the writing process right. how do we learn them how do we put them into action particularly if we've also got a full-time job or a part-time job mm-hmm. um, and it's about the knowledge of what we've covered in this course the rhetorical knowledge and the knowledge of, of productive writing behaviors mm-hmm. and even the knowledge of the understanding of behavior change mm-hmm. 
which again we know you know people know they shouldn't be smoking but it's it's quite hard to stop smoking and mm-hmm. become active people mm-hmm. know they should be more active but that behavior change is really hard and will fail initially unless people are in in groups you know if the spouse comes along or the family gets involved mm-hmm. So there are principles from behaviour change in other areas that we can bring to writing. Mm-hmm. But again, most people, most bright people who are doing PhDs might not know that. They'll just assume, I should be able to do this. And that's an even bigger burden. Why mm. am I not sorting this out? What is my problem? Right. Is it just about time? Okay, I better spend more time. No, mm-hmm. <laughs> we better change the way you're spending time in writing would be mm-hmm. one proposition. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, would you say just to summarize that then mm. that basically a program would be able to or at least these type of courses or interventions would be able to provide that those kind of perspectives saying look then i understand actually actually the kind of struggles that you have and these are the ways that you can overcome them uh, and you have to practice them over a period of time in order to learn how to actually engage with the writing process yeah i mean i think it is that that, that people need you know, it's always good to learn the knowledge base. And I think the problem with academic writing is people don't know that there is a knowledge base. Mm-hmm. They already know how to write. So it's, it's a kind mm-hmm. of conundrum. You already know how to write, and yet you don't know all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And as soon as you run, you'll have done this, a whole day in thesis writing or two days in thesis writing. Or even you go to a writing retreat with people who are, do, who are writing a thesis. Mm-hmm. They go, oh, right, OK, I see how to do that now. Mm-hmm. And they talk to each other and they work out problems in that you know, writing-specific environment, mm-hmm. um, they will work out solutions to their own problems. But if they're not in that environment, they'll carry on the way they are at the minute, mm-hmm. at the moment. So mm-hmm. it's it's a kind of paradox with writing that, um, you know, it's again that people don't know what they don't know and they don't know that this is a field of knowledge. So in that setting, what do we do? We do workshops, we do writing retreats, um, and we try and grow little communities and then give them the skills to grow their own writing communities which I think is key, because we can't be running all the groups, we can't be running all the retreats, mm-hmm. um, but to try and give them the skills to do that. But the retreat is, I think, quite important as a model, I don't know if we're coming on to that, but the right retreat is a model because it's like the total immersion. Mm-hmm. It's not just a here's your course, off you go. It's you're there for two days, you know, two nights and over the course of three days. And I think that's a completely different experience, mm-hmm. to be honest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I, th- I think, well, because we, we also run those retreats in uh, in, in yeah. Estonian context um, and, and we try to provide, you know, students, you know, with different um, uh, different strategies and also for the course, for example, to give them a day for writing. Um, but I, I think that, you know, just uh, following up with what you said in terms of, you know, we don't know what we don't know. Um, but we do know that we can write, for example, at least that kind of concept. So how do you sell that to the, you know, the, the decision makers in that sense? So how do you make them understand that you know, the way that we are tackling a problem at the moment is not good enough? Because all they see is actually, well, we have a lot of good people publishing a lot of good papers, you know, and they have not followed those retreats or they have not followed those courses. So, you know, what is the added value in this case for... That's a difficult one, and I think the answer is it's um, <clears throat> sporadic. You can get their attention from time to time. Mm-hmm. Uh, coming up to REF, the Research Excellence Framework in the UK, is all-powerful, and everybody knows what it is, and everybody knows it's important, and every university wants to score highly in it. That's essential, um, and people will go on, academics will go on teaching-only contracts if they're not in the REF is the fear and actually the practice in some universities already. So 
there are a lot of powerful drivers um, and sometimes you can get when I say you can get the attention of decision makers they'll fund something and that's when you know you've got their attention and you report back in that and then what gradually happens is they stop funding it and you have to go to maybe another decision maker for another pocket of funding mm -hmm. and you, it doesn't matter I think how much evidence you provide of the outputs and outcomes which is what I would do there's outputs mm -hmm. and there's outcomes the benefits and even as I would strongly argue this is developing what we would call the research culture in the university that it is about these interrelationships around writing these conversations around writing which otherwise do not occur I know that's a sweeping generalisation mm -hmm. but in general people don't talk about their writing in progress it's either it's done or why we're we talking about this is not done, just get it in, what's your problem, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so the conversations about around writing have disappeared, and you just have to kind of keep trying to get the attention of the decision makers. Mm -hmm. And that would be true probably for anything, to be perfectly honest. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's not just though the KPIs, the key performance indicators. We have to just keep uh, informing them of, of how important this is for PhD completions, for, you know, we have to have various arguments for the writing programme or the writing course or the writing retreats or mm -hmm. bits of funding here. Um, so it's kind of sporadic and fragmented and having done this for quite a long time in different universities and in different countries, um, I'm not sure there's another model. I wish there were, mm -hmm. uh, other than persistence mm -hmm. and trying to sustain your belief that this will help people. So it plays into our desire to help people mm -hmm. you know to, to help people complete their PhDs and have it not be a disastrously stressful experience which is avoidable having said that one of the workshops I went to in um, oh I'll not name the Nordic country because it, it might be clear where I've been but the person the most senior person in the room stood up before at the start of my session I'm just about to do a thesis writing day with PhD students and I was saying, you know, goal setting, managing the workflow. I was just putting the aims of my course up in the first slide. And he stood up and said, I, that, no, it, it should be. He just turned around and said to the students, no, it should be blood, sweat and tears. It should really hurt. And he went on and on and on about how bad you should feel when you're doing a PhD. And then he looked at me and I went, I could not disagree more. And he said, well, I thought you would probably say that. And there's a kind of smiling in the room. But they're listening to this very powerful person in the room vis-a-vis -vis me. And I'm thinking, for goodness sake, that's, is that, it's not old school. People still think that. So you're up against that, that it should hurt, mm -hmm. which I think is very wrong. Mm -hmm. That it's damaging people, the stress and the anxiety. Mm -hmm. that, that needs to stop. And maybe that's another angle, actually. That I, I, I don't make that argument very often, but I think it is a serious one. It is an important one. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I would like to ask uh, about a uh, specific intervention that you already mentioned, which is the writing retreats, and uh -huh. especially the structured writing retreats. So maybe can you please uh, describe the concept a little bit? So what's the structure part of it? And then maybe also what are the benefits of this structured writing retreat? And how can they be measured, if at all? Yeah. Okay. Um, I mean, writing retreats have existed for a while um, in different countries, maybe for more creative writers to begin with in like the 19th century. And uh, in, you know, in Ireland, for example, there would have been a lot of retreats for... And the concept is, is associated with religion as well, religious retreats. Uh, the retreats I first started doing in Limerick University were um, what I would call the solitary confinement model, where people would be in their own rooms in a hotel room and it would be a bedroom, and you'd be writing there all day. You could get your meals delivered to the room. 
and but they had good outcomes as well. We'll come, we'll come back to outcomes. So I'm not trying to critique that at all. I have a lot of respect for that. And then I came back and I thought I was actually when I was working in Australia, and um, they needed briefings from senior officers were coming in and out of the room. And if everybody had been in a separate room, we would have had to get them back in and take them out. And I thought, that's not going to work. We'll all work in the same room. And that's when I invented the structured writing retreat. So they come in, they went away, we carried on writing. Somebody else came in, they went away, we carried on writing. And I thought, this is actually better. So I'm calling this the typing pool model of writing retreat. And then gradually, um, I developed this idea of a very fixed programme. I mean, the timings, to begin with, were different from what they are now. I think now the timings are about right. Uh, for different reasons um, and I think it works because of these fixed timings that people know they're working from for example 9.30 in the morning till 11, 11 in the morning um, so they know they're going to get a break now some people the first time they have massive anxiety about stopping and I say well I can't go for my break until you leave the room, you know you all need to leave the room and I, I'm actually forcing this and I try and use a bit of humour so that it's not completely uh, forceful um, but I, I acknowledge it is an imposition and I, my pitch is just bear with me and try this you have to try it first of all and I say as we're finishing at 11 o'clock 5 to 11, save it back up and define your next writing task so that you the writer are joining up your writing tasks so as you finish at 5 to 11, you know you're coming back at 11.30 and people have reported to me they say actually it was actually easier stopping knowing that I was going to come back and do it again in, in uh, half an hour and from our position, you know, facilitating retreats, I think it's actually harder to get people to stop than it is to get people to start. Because once they start going, they're like... But that's an anxiety trigger as well. You know, I, I, I can't stop because I might never start again. You're like, no, 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 that's not what's happening here. You've got fixed writing slots. And the miraculous thing that happens, it's still kind of magical to me, is people come along on the Wednesday night, we have that first session of writing, we have the writing warm-up, and they say, right, we're going to start writing now. And they do. <laughs> And you're like, how did that happen? You know, and, and I don't measure their writing. I don't weigh their writing as they go out the room at the end of the retreat. They do. They they take stock in what they've achieved. And generally, they've achieved a lot, a lot more than they think they could. So in terms of measures, um, I would get uh, what how many words they've written at retreat or revised. Everybody knows that revising a 7,000-word paper is a big shift as well. So how many words have they written or revised? So new words, revised words. And that that would be a number. And I encourage counting words, as you know, as part of the goal setting. And it sounds a little bit strange and mechanistic, a bit simplistic, but actually there's a lot of thought goes into deciding whether to spend, to write 1,500 words or 500 words or 50 words. That's an intellectual decision. That's intellectual work around the numbers. So consequently, they should be able to see as they go out the door, They've written three, four, five, six, seven thousand words in a two-day retreat. So that's a measure. The outcomes are reducing anxiety, um, learning productive habits, networking about research, and lots of other outcomes that I've kind of published. Having said that, you know, when I say to people, other academics, you know, that I wrote eight thousand words, sometimes they look look at you like they look at you like you're a dog standing on your hind legs. You know, like you're doing a special trick, like. Like, you, like you're so foolish you think 7,000 words is an outcome and actually if you've done 7,000 words you're delighted and you know you're going to revise it we know it's not perfect but it is a full draft and all the other benefits you've had so even if you can report measures um, to the decision makers it's sometimes just 
not entirely a waste of time. I think you still have to keep doing it. But the individual writer's measures are what's important, that they measure, they have concrete measures of what they've done and they can talk about that with confidence and clarity as opposed to just saying what's not done yet. You know, which is if you don't have a specific goal, you don't know what you've achieved, you don't count the numbers. Well, I did this and I did that, but it's not finished yet and I'll do that, I'll try and do this next week and I'll maybe finish it next month. These are not goals, that's not a goal setting process. So in a way it's almost more important for me that the individual measures his or her outputs and outcomes that the individual develops measures for productivity in a good sense, um, confidence, reduced anxiety, well-being. Everybody gets increased well-being. We've not got measures for that. We've thought about putting heart rate monitors in people and taking their blood pressure. Mm-hmm. And that may yet happen, but we've just never done it because mm-hmm. I want people to be there for their writing rather than for my measures, if you know what I mean. So mm-hmm. I, I've been quite careful about when I take interview feedback or whatever that we've got to be careful how we do that although measures are super important yeah yeah so it's maybe a partial answer to your question um I'm, I'm wondering about the typing pool model when yeah. you first introduced it because this is something that we have been using as well Good. and at first we really faced some resistance well they did what they said what, what, what we said or what we asked actually in the end but uh some people um feel quite anxious about writing in a room with other people because they want to write in solitude. Yeah, and I mean, the, the structured writing retreat model is meant to, or we've shown that it can reduce writing-related anxiety. But I know that people, um, maybe not so much my generation, maybe more your generation and younger, um, to take away the internet and social media can increase anxiety right there, which is what we're doing at um, Right Retreat. We're taking away the internet and social media and other devices in order to focus just on the writing. So I know from talking to them, I haven't written about this very much, but I think we all know that um, you know people feel out of touch and people want to check the reference. And I'm like, well, let's call all of these things now not writing. These things literally mean stopping the writing and going and doing something else. And they go, oh, yes, 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 yes. So... Um, what was the question again? The structured writing retreats, the the anxiety. Oh, how what was the oh, perception? The pushback. The, the pushback. I think was the issue about you know if people yeah. resisted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the yeah. Common room. Yeah, and I think my pitch is you know even when people choose to come, I'm I'm aware that there's anxiety in the room at the first meeting. Um, so some of that you can assuage and, and make go away and some of it you can't because again the individual I mean you provide the safe framework within which people can work on or leave behind uh, their own anxieties um, and my pitch has been to people look I know this is going to sound change, sound different, this is about change, this is about change, I presume that's why you're here, we're going to try changing your behaviours and your concepts about writing and it will be very productive so I'm trying to reassure you and at the end of the day, as I said earlier, you have to bear with me. Can you bear with me and try this? And if you have questions about it, we can talk about this in the break. Or if it's not working, if you feel your writing is running into the sand, I'm here to help you. I'm doing my writing, but I'm here to help you so we can go out and have a wee chat mm-hmm. about things you might do in the next session. So I think maybe that's quite good for just saying, give it a go. Um, not even that there's a literature on how this works. It's just let's try this because they've already chosen to come. Mm-hmm. 
So I, I think, you know, there are references in the briefing notes, so they know there's a literature. Mm-hmm. And they've read, I think, reading Murray and Newton, because I think that's essential, that paper. I mean, it's not the newest paper, but it seems to still work really well as an introduction to the approach. So that as they come along, they know what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. So they've tacitly agreed to that way of working. Right. Yeah. I don't know if you do that. Do you use that as an introduction? No. Well, um, <clears throat> when we introduce, actually, we do introduce, um, you know, the concept that you have uh, developed, and uh, well, we do use you as an example, okay. uh, you know, in the way that you know those retreats are run as well. Um, you know, so we always have an introductory workshop, actually telling them what the aims are, and that students are actually not allowed to go into their rooms, um, because a lot of the students who come. Um, well, now they already have a little bit of that kind of, you know, they, they know what we are going to do. Uh-huh. Um, but many of the students actually don't have that so perception. So they will come to a retreat uh-huh. knowing that, OK, well, for now I have, in our case, four or five days where I can just lock myself up uh-huh. and do some work. Uh-huh. Um, whereas what we're ask, asking them to do is, OK, well, you have to take breaks and, you know, you have to also, mm-hmm. you know, for example, go for walks. You have to do some exercises, you know, we uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and um so, so this is a, something that you wanted to ask about as well. <coughs> yes, absolutely, because we have had some uh, perhaps uh, troubles uh, justifying uh, including physical activities mm-hmm. into the schedule and uh, using uh, inviting yoga teachers or, or, mm-hmm. or somebody, mm-hmm. uh, some instructors. So uh, do you think that's an important part of a writing? I think literature? it's essential. The, the literature, um, if, if you get them to read one paper, the paper is Dunstan et al. 2010 in the journal Circulation. Um, and Morig Thau's literature, she's written a wee book called How to Be Healthy at Work, and she surveys some of that literature on the risks of sitting for... And the paper Dunstan et al. <clears throat> if you sit for four hours, which somebody who's wanting to do, <clears throat> excuse me, um, you know, the, the binge model of writing, might sit for four hours, your blood pressure goes up, you increase your cardiovascular risk factors by 80%, 80%, even if you eat and drink nothing, Blood pressure goes up, cholesterol goes up from sitting. And all the mechanisms now have been explained since 2010 and now. We now know what the mechanisms of that are. And it's it's about what you're doing to the inflammatory, the anti-inflammatory responses. And all the big bad diseases, cancer, strokes and heart disease are all inflammations of one kind. So you might not see the damage you've done for 20 years, but you'll be damaging your blood and damaging your blood vessels and that's how the inflammation, you are actually literally by sitting for extended periods. And they did a study on people who sit for extended periods and people who sit but get up and down. Mm. And their blood measures are completely different. Like theirs is all like, it's all a green colour in the graph. And theirs are green, yellow, green, yellow, green, yellow, green, yellow. You know, you can see mm-hmm. the way their physiology is responding to sitting for extended periods. So that's a little talk on how frightening it is. I mean, sometimes when I say the paper Dunstan et al, it concludes with the words premature death. Right. And people laugh. And I'm like, no, it really does. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's what you're doing. You're shortening your life by sitting for extended periods. And I'm very aware as people who, you know, somebody who runs retreats, I'm encouraging people to sit for extended periods. Mm-hmm. But they have to break. They have to be breakers. Um, otherwise, um, there's a serious proven risk to their health. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where all these standing desks and stuff comes from as well you don't stand all the time, you get the one that goes up and down and you sit and stand um, so I think you can you can invoke that literature, that research mm-hmm. on the health risks so again um, at my writing retreats we used to have a two hour session on the longest of the three days 
never again. So once we knew about this literature, we have an hour and a half as the most. And I would even encourage people to stand up within the hour and a half because you should never sit for more than an hour. Mm-hmm. And you should stand up for at least two minutes mm-hmm. is the latest science on it. So again, a lot of really bright people. And I'm an athlete, so I, you know, mm-hmm. I know some of the science and the physiology, but most people don't know this stuff. Um, and I guess you can point them to it, mm-hmm. but you can just say I drip feed some of these health messages into the writing retreats I run. I would use the words premature death. I would use Dunstan et al. <laughs> 2010. Right. And if they've been to retreats before, I'll go Dunstan et al. What year was it again? Mm-hmm. They go 2010. Mm-hmm. <laughs> How many percent do you increase your cardiovascular risk factors if you sit for it by if you sit for four hours? Eighty. <laughs> <laughs> so and we make it a bit of a joke. It's entirely not funny at all, mm-hmm. but it's. It's mm-hmm. real stuff. It's and it's the latest science that I only know because I happen to live with a cardiologist. So right. um, that's that kind of worries me that people don't know that and, mm. and are doing terrible things by sitting for long periods. So that's another angle, really. I right. guess. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> you, you mentioned earlier uh, that the retreats um, <clears throat> are also somewhat triggers for change. Uh, yeah. So there, there are writers who have for example bad habits of writing or actually maybe no habits for writing so you you so the, so the retreats are great to help uh, writers uh, change their habits so the course that we have caters for for primarily for first year phd students so we encourage actually also second and third year phd students to come into the course because they might already have a habit of writing but need to perhaps change their habit of writing. But if you think about, you know, first year doctoral students, PhD students, you know, so what, what kind of message would you have for them to start developing writing habits right from the start um, if, they, if they don't have them and, and how to sort of like avoid actually having to go to retreats in that sense? You know, I'm not saying that they should because I think retreats are really great in that sense, but to build those habits that they actually will become productive writers. Is, is that a possibility? Yeah, I mean... I think definitely writing from the start, I would have to say. And whenever I do a thesis writing workshop where there are people in their second or third or fourth or, or later years, just about everybody says that, and we heard it at this course too, I wish I had done this earlier. Right. So that's a, that's a key message. If the second and third years are saying, I wish I had done this earlier, mm-hmm. then you really should be doing this in your first year. By all means, talk to somebody in the second and third year who's just done this and say, why are you saying that? You know, follow that up if you wish. But why not just try it? And that would take me to my second point, which is, I think where you want to get to with your writing in your first year is you want to have a repertoire. You want to have what you currently do, which is fine. It got you where you are now. You can do these forms of writing. You can do them very well. You can get great marks. You can get admitted to a doctoral programme. Excellence. Um, however, you, you need to write this bigger argument now. It's called a thesis, which is so many, you know, 80,000 words, for example, and certain structures and certain requirements, certain criteria. It's a different thing. So why not go and learn about that? So why not learn a bit about free writing, generative writing, outlining, uh, rhetorical knowledge, you know, and have a repertoire of strategies so that you're not just locked into what you currently do. And that might mean writing in solitude, or it might be writing with other people and trying these things and putting together not just an improved way of writing, but various ways of writing, because you're going to be writing more than one kind of thing. And even within a thesis, there might be different kinds of writing that you would do for different, you know, for the methods, as opposed to the discussion, which would be more interpretive. It's still an argument. Um, and there are other examples of different kinds of writing. So I think 
for the message for for first year students would be you know you're still learning um if if courses are provided then take advantage of that and try and be actively developing a repertoire mm-hmm. um of writing skills rather than just kind of getting locked into the ideal because mm-hmm. the ideal frequently isn't available um mm-hmm. and again the paradox is that bright people know what works you know they can they can they're problem solvers and but with writing you know this is a long extended writing mm-hmm challenge you've been set so you need different strategies for the different phases of that writing and to be honest write right away even if you think it's not ready and it's not good enough so that you get feedback and just mm-hmm. keep doing that otherwise you really don't know mm-hmm. <laughs> but you really actually don't know if you don't write mm-hmm. you really don't know and you've kind of done that to yourself you've mm-hmm. made you've created anxiety for yourself you've created uncertainty by not giving the supervisors anything that they can give you feedback on mm-hmm. <laughs> gesture yeah. of shaking heads and holding hands in the air you know right. <laughs> why would you do that you yeah. Know? <laughs> yeah yeah that's definitely a, a message that we get out to students and yeah. is, is you know write as much and and we organize uh, for our course also writing groups so that students are actually within a group uh, sharing their writing and talking about their writing and um, that's excellent yeah. and uh, and and that model seems to work quite quite well for for us but of course, we can see that, again, within those models or within those, you know, uh, say, interventions that we provide for students, there is some resistance by some uh-huh. because they feel like, well, I don't, you know, I don't need to share or I, 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 uh-huh. I, I'm, uh-huh. you know, I'm not that far in my first year yet, uh-huh. for example, that I can write about it. Uh-huh. Um, can I just quote one of the, the brightest and one of the brightest PhD students I've ever met, and it wasn't my student, but somebody else was saying, this This is a breeze. This person is sailing through everything. She's so good. And nothing phases her. New challenge in the PhD, learning the methodology, the whole thing. Um, and this person came to a retreat later on in her PhD, and she said, you know, and she was she's super bright, but just bright on many levels, really one of the best... Uh, uh, researchers or PhD candidates or PhD students have, have known but she said uh, ah the writing retreat she said I thought it was a last resort kind of thing <laughs> I see now that it's about productivity and doing the right she said yeah I get it now mm-hmm. so I guess the other thing I've done is that you could do and it might be good for your other students is I don't know if you've looked at my website but there's little videos of students Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so I think that's quite powerful just little 20 second videos Mm -hmm. of students and there's one of the dog as well the Mm -hmm. dog talking about Mm -hmm. his PhD so you know and that means you can you can get them to give different perspectives there's young and old Mm -hmm. and people from different countries you might even get them to talk about the scepticism like you could get that student I just described saying Mm -hmm. I thought it was a last resort but Mm -hmm. actually it was brilliant it was very productive and Mm -hmm. I learned a lot so just getting little snippets like that mm-hmm. and helps students who are not sure because they're listening to other students and they can easily go and look at the website rather than mm-hmm. listening to you and me and try and persuade them. All right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, okay, well, maybe it's time to round up our discussion. Um, okay. So I, I just would like to read a concluding statement from one of your latest publications with uh, Larissa Kempenar, uh where you state that um, impact and sustainability of the sustainability of the impact uh, are generally limited. So in the absence of evidence regarding the scale of the effect and sustained impact, we suggest that these interventions may therefore have limited short-term impact and are unlikely to lead to a sustained change in writing cultures and practices in academia. 
For programs to make sustained differences to the writing practices and culture of academics, all domains within the transactional and system approach must be addressed. So do you think you can comment on this and, and how this could be achieved? Yeah, I mean, I think <clears throat> I've been thinking about this a bit today, you know, at this course, because, uh, and I've contrasted this course with the retreats and the other workshops I do, where I'm, I have, which have a different emphasis. You know, the retreat is all about, let's start writing now and keep writing. The writing workshops are, here's some new knowledge and some writing activities, so it's a bit of both. This course was all about, here is some rhetorical knowledge and there was some writing time to put it into practice. So, um, I think as more and more people attend retreats, I mean, there's lots of people running writing retreats and creating groups and what I would see is alternative microcultures for writing. Um, and I think this is key, that it's it's what writers need to develop for themselves. They need to recognise and realise. And this is maybe where PhD students have to step up as well and say, OK, this works. They need to organise some writing groups rather than waiting for you two to organise the writing groups. They need to construct the benefits. They need to see the benefits, talk about the benefits, talk to their supervisors about the benefits. Supervisors might or might not listen keep talking to each other and carrying on with these strategies that we know work. Um, and as I see more people attending writing retreats and serial attenders, they call themselves, you can sense a, a change of culture that there are more people who know about this alternative. Mm-hmm. Um, and they take some of that back to campus. But I think campus environments mm, are in some ways quite contrary to what we achieve at, and without stating it more strongly than mm-hmm. that, that it's not possible to bring all of this type way of working on research or in writing mm-hmm. to many campus environments. I used to say actually it wasn't possible at all to take the writing retreat principles back to campus and now I see that's wrong. Mm-hmm. It is possible to have writing groups and retreats on campus but you need to choose where you have them mm-hmm. quite carefully um, otherwise you know, if it's in your office, you might never be interrupted. But, you know, you might be. So it's a completely different mindset. Your brain is, yeah, focusing on writing, but somebody could come in the door. So how they construct, not just writing-oriented, but writing-specific spaces and times, that's really what it's all about, isn't it? Mm -hmm. It's on us to help them see how to do that, and then it's on them, the PhD students, to make writing the only thing they're doing for an hour and a half. Right. And if you do that, you'll be super productive. And if they don't, if they try and check references and do four or five other things, mm-hmm. less likely. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah, I think, and this may be a final comment, is that what we try to do as well is, is after the course, invite students to actually participate in the course. Good. So, for example, have students who have completed the course become assistants in the follow-up year. So, that, you know, the things that they have learned... Mm-hmm. Um, that they would be able to put this into practice, specifically because we are catering to all the domains. Um, so really asking you know, students from, for example, the medical sciences to work with a group of other students from the medical That's sciences. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and in this case, also to develop this kind of like community of practice and actually to give them the power to, well, to implement it within their discipline so that it doesn't only belong to us because it doesn't. Writing mm-hmm. doesn't belong mm-hmm. to us at all. Mm-hmm. You know, the writing belongs to, to the PhD students or mm-hmm. to those who are writing it. But, you know, so we feel that, you know, it's also our need and our duty to, to give it to them and say, mm-hmm. OK, well, here are the tools. 
you know, use it with your students, you know, use it with your colleagues, you know, use it, you know, within your discipline. I, I think it's, I mean, okay, maybe final remark as well. I think you've got, your role is very important because, as you said, you know, there's, or there's the quote you mentioned, this talks about working in different domains. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not just about tools. People may call it tools, and that's fine. Mm-hmm. But it's also about cognition. It's also about concepts right. that they have about writing that could change and behaviours. So it's about how do you find interventions that work on all these fronts and their beliefs, you know, their beliefs about themselves as writers and it's related to identity. So the analysis, the Murray and Kempenar, Kempenar and Murray papers, is about trying to look at the whole way, a holistic way, I guess, of um, working on all these fronts. Not that we can assume we are going to work on all these fronts for everybody in the room, but even to enlighten PhD students that there are these domains that are at work. Uh, including, you know, their blood sugars, um, their physiology. All these domains are at work when they're writing mm-hmm. and they need to um, work out how they're going to make that healthy and a healthy and productive process. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it's not all on you, but it, it, mm-hmm. you have the knowledge. That's yeah, it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, good. Okay. Well, thank you very much. You're very welcome. And, um, yeah, again... You know, we've had a wonderful time at the retreat here Great. or at the uh, at the course. And um, yeah, we look forward to involving more students because some students have already asked, can we attend those retreats as well? Great. So they're looking for fundings and hopefully some of them might actually come here. Excellent. Um, Excellent. Know. Good. Mm-hmm. That would be great. Yeah. Look forward to meeting you all. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Well, that's it for today's episode. Be sure to check out our Facebook and university webpage. We want to hear your questions and feedback. So message us on Facebook and we'll be answering you on a later podcast. Bye-bye for now.